Welcome to the Curious Saying Getty. We're your host, David Swagger, Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing. And subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Drop your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. You now have 15 seconds to comply. Gee, I hope there's no glitch. <laughs> All right. So for our first one, coming from Bleeping Computer, crafty threat actor uses aged domains to evade security platforms. If this had been from the register, they probably would have made a fine wine joke, I'm thinking. Or maybe <laughs> just an elderly, yep. I don't know. I'm very disappointed. Anyway, so one of the main ways that everybody knows to kneecap a new attack is that you block new domains. Typically what I've seen is 30 days, but David added some notes in here on 60 and 90 day old ones as well. And if you do that, it just solves a lot of problems. It solves a lot of attacks from attackers with very little foresight who register it and try to use it immediately. So there's a threat actor named that they have named Cash Rewindo, which sounds like a bad Star Wars name. <laughs> They've decided to avoid that method by using domains registered years ago, in some cases registered in, 20, in 2008. So they've appeared benign for years. So this actor has been known since 2018. And wow. So his campaign is, or their campaign, although it's probably a he, their campaign is malvertising. Starts with a catchy ad that's kind of scammy, but you know, is really draws your eye. Then if a user clicks on the ad, it's going to check and determine if you're in the target group based on time zone, device platform, and language. If you're in the target group, you get malware. Uh, they had a Congratulations. list of the, <laughs> you win. Uh, they had a list of the top countries, and it's actually kind of interesting. The US is on there, but the US is like 17. The top country is Hungary with three quarter almost three quarters of a million. Uh, site sightings, Poland with just over half a million sightings, and then it drops way off after that. Croatia with nine, 90,000, Serbia with 70,000, Czech Republic with 50,000. Those are all rounded. So very targeted on Hungary and Poland, very targeted on Eastern Europe. So it's obviously China. Actually, it's probably the United States. You're like, <laughs> oh, these are foreign Warsaw Pact countries. Let's get them. Well, the next one, I think I didn't put it on here, but I think number six was like Nigeria or something. But yeah, like nine or eight of the top 10 countries that were targeted are Eastern Europe. So it's interesting. Anyways, if you're not in the target group, it sends you somewhere innocent or it sends you to a typical investment scam page. So that's the summary. Discussion points, holding domains in reserve for 14 years. That is some commitment. Yeah, you have to be serious. Yeah. Talk about playing in the head. Well, so that's actually, that was my first thought was, are they planning ahead? Did they literally in 2008 start buying domains with the plans that maybe they could use them maliciously down the road? Or did they purchase the rights to use it off of someone or they buy it off someone? I don't know. I don't know if you buy, if someone's registered domain already and then you buy it from them, does that show up as newly registered because the ownership has changed or does it still show up as, you know, being however many years, having been registered however many years ago? That's a good question because I have used passive total to go look up and see how registrations change hands over time. But I don't know if the proxy or the firewall considers that to be newly registered. You'd have to go and look at the logic inside the proxy or firewall. 
So, cause I don't know if they're looking for original registration date or transfer date or what, but that would make sense to me that maybe you should also know. Cause then if you block something every time it was transferred, they have to be looking at original registration date. Cause if you block something every time it was transferred, like companies transferring between holding companies and stuff would lead to domains being blocked. Right. So that, yeah. So they might've just bought it off of someone else. Which makes their forethought a little less seen. Well, I honestly just can't believe that someone 14 years ago was like, I'm going to start buying domains just in case I want to use them for malicious stuff down the road. You know, what's a scarier thought is that the guy who did this, he was 10. Actually, that would make more sense with some of these malware domains because there are some of the domains are, well, anyways. And now this makes me wonder if APTs are just registering hundreds of domains a year just for this purpose, where they just, you know, this year we're buying a hundred domains and we might not use them this year. We might use them in three years. We might use them in 10 years because they do have the foresight for this type of thing. Yeah. Well, they could be treating it like long-term food storage. You know, whenever you use a domain, you grab the oldest one and then you replace it with a new one. Oh, uh, so you register a new one. And it just kind of goes on a cycle like that. And it's just part of their processes or TTPs. It's like, oh, you used one of the domains on the list. You got to go and register a new one uh, that we can then use years from now. Yeah. The only thing that would be tough there is they would have to use a variety of methods to register it. Otherwise, as soon as one of them was used for a malicious campaign, people would block, you know, everything with similar registration information. Right. But I'm sure they probably have that automated. Someone wrote a script that goes out and, you know, changes the name and changes the address and stuff like that. Yeah, because one of the things they'd have to be careful of as well as, or have in their processes is choosing the correct name to be registered, right? Because if they create the main, you know, papermoneyisawesome.com, <laughs> you know, probably would not work too well if they said they were sending someone to a crypto page. But if they were doing a propaganda piece about how fiat money is the best, it works out. Right. So it depends <laughs> on, you know, they'd have to pick some. Probably some kind of plan to make them as generic as possible or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. So the, that was the main reason I pointed this out is because this is just a weird and interesting new twist on this. But the selective targeting thing has always made analysis a pain ever since I was an analyst. You get an email or a link reported maybe through phishing, but it doesn't trigger virus total. Or when you run it through your URL scan, it shows an innocuous page. And it's very difficult to tell if that's the way it always acts. Or if the attackers have, you know, blacklisted or they know which exit IPs, virus total or URL scan, or they don't know and they don't care, but you know, you're not doing running the scan from an IP in Hungary and therefore you just see the normal page. Right. So you'd have to check it six times in, you know, six different regions with a VPN or At something. At least, if not to get more. get that to work. Yeah. Well, generally yeah. it's pretty region specific. So... You know, North America, South America, Asia, Europe, and then Eastern Europe, I would categorize by itself. Yeah. And maybe even China by itself as to where you would check from. Yeah. Yeah. And there are ways to select different exit IPs, VPNs for the tools. URL scan, for example, I know they have a feature where you can run a URL and it'll run it through something like 20 different IP addresses in 20 different countries. And it'll show you the results as tiny little thumbnails so you can see if one of them is obviously different. Oh, that's handy. It is handy, but you definitely want to write an automation for that, you know, oh, yeah. run it. And then you probably can't hash the page you get back because it may have different variables in there, but there's got to be a way to compare for like what percentage matches maybe. And if, you know, if you run it across, let's say you do it the six different regions 
and they all match like 98%, like, you know, everything but the variables, you ignore it. Or you just pick out the outlier. You know, five of them match 76%, but one of them matches 2%. You're like, let's look at that one. Right. Yeah. But something else that was mentioned in the article I thought was interesting, I couldn't, uh, because of the terms used, I couldn't find anything useful when I looked for it. And they mentioned just almost in passing that they use a tiny red circle that helps confu confuse computer vision detection modules. I, like I said, Googling for red circle and computer vision is hard to come up with any useful hits that gave me any idea about how a tiny red circle helps compute, confuse computer vision. But that might be something at least you can look for on ads to see if there's a tiny red circle on it and give you an idea that's possible malvertising because of the circle is there. Yeah, anyway. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if they're using the computer vision detection, like when one person detects that particular ad as malicious and then it gets into the ecosystem and then the other people are able to see if you reuse that same ad and flag it. But eh, I don't know. So why does this matter? Well, this is just another move in the cat and mouse game we play with the criminals. And you should be aware of and keep an eye out for this. Typically speaking, domain aging is used for automatic blocking. And as an indicator of badness, but not the final piece of evidence that something is definitively malicious or benign. Uh, since domains or websites can be hijacked or compromised, you should never determine a domain is benign simply because it's 10 years old. So it shouldn't really change much. Just, you know, keep an eye out for it. All right. The next article is how to use cyber deception to counter evolving and advanced threat landscape. Uh, this comes to us from Dark Reading written by a couple of folks at Booz Allen. Ooh, I'm sure they have many quality things to say here. Well, I have many quality things to say about them, but to summarize the article, the, they're proposing that you can use cyber, cyber dece deception to lead the attacker down the garden path and collect intelligence from them on how they do what they do using deception with a variety of different types of deception technologies, you know, honeypots, lures, tripwires, et cetera. But after reading the entire article, the subtitle really should have been, this is really hard, complex, and takes a team of highly skilled folks to manage, and you will probably fail at doing it. Nice, nice. So I did notice there's a weird quote at the beginning. They quoted in one of the first paragraphs that, quote, many defense strategies aim for zero incidents across an entire network, end quote. Uh, that is really. the exact opposite of the normal, which is assume breach. So that makes me wonder. I didn't realize this was written by consultants, but I guess I should have known. Yeah, actually, I think their titles are technologists, isn't it? Is it? That is a ridiculous title. Does it come with a raise? Maybe I should ask for that. Yeah, okay. lead technologist and senior lead technologist. Yeah, I think that means they read articles on the internet. Yeah. It's almost like junior threat intel. And just as useful. <laughs> All right. So they start off with a criteria for who should use deception. And the quote from the article is, if you have existing cybersecurity solutions, such as endpoint detection and response and security operation centers, systems uh, that require high fidelity alerting or robust threat intelligent capabilities that can conduct analysis, produce reports, and share public security posture, you're a good candidate. So basically... If you have tools and a security staff, you should use deception. Damn it. We have tools, but no security staff. Terrible. Well, I guess you should not get deception technology. But they follow that with, however, deception tech will never be an effective solution for a team that does not have the resources to address alerts in a timely manner. So basically, if you do not have security tools and security people, you should not do it. That 
Sounds good. And they go on to say cyber deception would be inappropriate for even a large enterprise if it does not have a dedicated team to help manage the deception. And they could have summarized all three of those paragraphs down into simply saying, if you have the resources to dedicate to, to have a dedicated team to do this, then deception is for you. So some of the items even that are listed here don't really require a dedicated team. Some of them definitely do, you know, high, well, we'll talk about them, but some are fairly simple to just kind of sprinkle around your environment. Yeah. It, the way that I read this article really is it, it's, it seems to be written more like talking people out of using deceptive technology rather than making it encouraging people to use deception technology. Maybe you were supposed to come out of this thinking, we really need to hire Booz Allen. That is certainly possible. This is too hard to do on your own. Yeah, you need us. And we have this consultant, Ed Snowden, who can deploy this lickety split. <laughs> but they said that you will need a staff of highly skilled and experienced team with a breadth of experience working in blue and red team scenarios, which is key to doing this successfully. Uh, and the tools that they list as being utilized for deception are high interaction honeypots, lures, honeypot, or I'm sorry, high interaction decoys, lures, honeypots, breadcrumbs, lures, again, canary <laughs> tokens, and which all simulate critical infrastructure services and configurations. And after going through, hey, this is what you need and who's right to do this, then they say, well, this is the way you do it right. You have to know the tool, you have to pilot it, you have to plan the deployment around your high value assets, train the staff, and then know who is comfortable in using the tool or comfortable with using the tool. So if the CISO is not comfortable with using the tool, then maybe you shouldn't be doing this, which seems to be something you should know first before you go through all this rigmarole to identify tool, purchase tool, and try to implement a tool. And they say, well, if the CISO is not comfortable, then just create some fake admin accounts and you'll be good to go. Which brings yeah. me to, go ahead. I was going to say, like the fake admin accounts, like that's something the canary tokens, canary documents kind of sprinkled around that say stuff like passwords or something like that. Like that's stuff you can do that's not terribly high maintenance. Uh, some right. of the stuff you mentioned, simulating critical infrastructure services and configurations, that's super high maintenance, but. Huh. Yeah, exactly. Which me leads me to the summarization article that these guys are idiots and actually don't know a damn thing uh, about deception. <laughs> Hey, I think you should take a controversial stance on this. Okay, I will try to do that. <laughs> but you go through the whole article and they talk about how difficult it is, how you have to have highly skilled staff to implement it. You have to do this in a very technical way and, com and add complexity and how you're going to trick the attackers and track their TTPs and things like that in the article. But it's a bunch of nonsense, to be honest. Uh, deception at tech, I think, can be a great tool to detect attackers that have breached your perimeter because it has a relatively low false positive rate depending on how you've got it all tweaked. Uh, and most organizations can really do this, but some of the technology is oversold as some as, by some vendors as you can fire and forget, or like these jokers say, it's highly complex thing and should only be done by the largest teams that have dedicated people. But I think it's somewhere in the middle. If you spend time developing your use cases, you know, exactly what you want to get out of your deception technology and don't roll your own, buy a COTS product. That's going to save you a lot of heartache and, and headache ensuring that it works properly and you have the support there. And when you're selecting your tool, uh, make sure that the tool can meet your use cases. So go through a requirements collection and discussions with the vendors first 
then POC a couple, two or three to see if it's actually going to meet the use cases that you develop before your use case and your requirements before you actually put down the path of evaluating the tool. And when you start deploying it, just start small. Do a couple of different technologies or diff different types of capabilities. You know, you do breadcrumbs, you know, do what, you know, one or two of each. So you do a honeypot, you do a decoy, you do some canaries, a couple of tokens or something like that. Or you just pick one type of deception tech and you deploy that. So just say you're going to do some fake admin credentials or something like that. Just start off with one, start small and then build from there. And make sure you plan in extra time to tune the tool during the deployment. Don't expect, and like we talked about last week with the hype cycle about how long it takes for a tool to become useful. You know, expect a learning curve there to say you're going to deploy deception tech. It's going to be in production, but maybe because you got to tweak it and tune it and weed out any possible false positives and everything. It may be not actually useful for a couple of months while you go through that process and ensure that you've got it well integrated into your SIM so that the alerts reflect the fidelity that you assess them to be. So early on, when you're first rolling this thing out, the deception alerts, maybe you give them a moderate fidelity, say that, you know, this possibly is a malicious activity. And then as you tune it and get it better, then that moves up to more you know, likely compromise or something like that as you've matured your deception rollout. Seems good. The next article is computer repair technicians are stealing your data. <sighs> and we pulled this off of Bruce Schneier's blog. Yeah, and, I, and this one showed up because we just talked about the Samsung technology that allowed you to put your phone in maintenance mode so that people couldn't steal your stuff. But we had no proof that people were stealing your stuff. And here it is. Yeah. Guess what? So researchers at the University of Yelp in Ontario, Canada, <laughs> recovered logs from laptops receiving overnight repairs from 12 commercial shops. And the logs showed that the connection, the technicians from 50% of those had access to personal data. And two of those shops also copied the data onto their own devices from the laptops that they dropped off. So what the researchers put on these laptops that they dropped off, that they submitted to these repair shops, they added documents that had both sexually revealing and non-sexual revealing pictures, cryptocurrency wallets with credentials. They configured the laptops to run a custom logging app that used Windows Step Recorder utility, the Windows Step Recorder utility to run in the background. And they enabled the Windows audit policy to log access to any file on the device. Now, they then took these laptops to two national outlets, two regional outlets, and four local outlets using half male customers, half female customers that would actually drop off the laptop so that the technicians would assume the ownership was, you know, one gender or the other. And one of the things that they found just in that process was that most repair technicians required the customer to surrender their login password, even if the repair did not require logging into the device. And what they tried to do or what they said was wrong with it was they need to replace the battery. Obviously, yeah, this, you don't need to log in to replace the battery. This exactly happened to me when I went to go take my phone in for repairs. They were like, we need you to disable the lock screen. Why? You're replacing the screen. And I sat there and watched him do it because I didn't want to leave it. And they did not need to log in. Yep. So when they did this, of the shops, three refused to take the device at all unless they provided credentials. Four agreed to do the work, but they would not guarantee the work. One asked the customer to remove the password entirely. And one said they would reset the device if they did not get the password. Or if, you know, if they, 
if you gave them the, if they gave them the device without providing the credentials, they would format the device. Yeah. Not great. As far as <laughs> even just dropping the laptops off. Now a device, the devices which were dropped off by women were more likely to be snooped on by the technicians. Look, and specifically the technicians would look for pictures, hopefully sexually related and financial information as well. And when they retrieved the laptops from the repair technicians, in three cases, the quick access or recently accessed files had been deleted. Two of the visits resulted in the logs the researchers relied on being unrecoverable. And one visit resulted in multiple viruses being removed despite the systems being brand new, basically when they turned them over to the technicians. Yeah, this whole thing is <clears throat> frankly execrable behavior. Requiring them to surrender a login password when it's not necessary, deleting data that would show whether they performed or misperformed. And then frankly, at least one of them lying to you afterwards about how much work they did and what things they needed to do. This is, I never, I've never taken this time that I went and got my phone screen repaired is the only time I've ever used one of these services. And it's going to be the last if I can avoid it. Yeah, I've taken in a couple of Mac computers to the Apple store and I've never surrendered my credentials to get it fixed. I imagine that they didn't say which of these was which. They said that they took it to two national outlets, two regional and four local ones. I would bet that the national ones, I would hope that the national ones had a much lower case because they've got lawyers and they've got hopefully, you know, not, you know, your boss going, oh, shoot, dude, what'd you find on there? Right. Yep. Send it to my phone. Can I get a copy of that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the bottom line is if you take your computer in to get fixed, they're going to steal your stuff. They're going to steal your data. Sounds like a pretty good chance. Yeah. If you turn it in. I mean, if you're at 50%, you just have to assume that's going to be the case. So if you have to drop off your laptop or any computer, really your phone to be fixed, I'd ensure you've got a recent backup and then nuke it before having them repair it. Wow. Yeah. Or alternatively, put a lot of really disgusting stuff on there. So when they go looking, they find horrible things that. That hopefully won't get looking. you. And hopefully won't get you reported to the cops by them. I'd say illegal. <laughs> I didn't say all right, horrible. So horrible is not a great word. You're right. You're right. Disgusting things. All right. So for our next article, we are going to talk 209. San Francisco lawmakers approve lethal robots, but they can't carry guns, which actually I'm going to disagree with because they included part of the policy and the policy does not say they can't carry guns. Summary. Uh, this is from the register. This is a surprisingly normal headline from the register. I'm a little disappointed. Anyways, summary. Well, the subtitle, San- subtitle made up for it. Oh, shoot. I didn't see the subtitle. We didn't copy and paste that. What's the subtitle? Rise of the Explosive Machines. Yep, you're right. You're right. All right. So summary. San Francisco has voted to allow police to use robots in, quote, extreme situations, end quote. The robots can be allowed to carry explosives. They will not carry weapons, quote, and SFPD has no plans to attach firearms. SFPD is authorized to use these robots to carry out deadly force in extremely limited situations. They specifically called out terrorists and mass shootings. And the policy states, quote, when risk of loss of life to members of the public or officers is imminent and outweighs any other force option available. Good thing that uh, you can drive a loophole through that last one or couldn't drive a robot through that loophole. Yeah. There we go. But to clarify their summary, though, where they say San Francisco is voted, this is not the people of San Francisco. This is the board of supervisors 
So it's not as if they actually asked the citizens of San Francisco, hey, can we send, you know, grenade wielding robots down the street? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm imagining like those EOD robots tossing grenades in just random directions. (laughs) Wireless Joe Jackson. So this is in relation to California Assembly Bill 481, which, quote, requires law enforcement agencies to obtain approval from an appropriate legislative body for the use of military equipment. And these robots are military equipment. Yeah. Built by defense contractors. Yeah. Yep. So discussion points. No plans? They have no plans to equip them with weapons? Does that mean they're allowed to if they change their mind? Well, Uh, I think it's obvious based on what they put in there because there's a quote in there which says, However, in extreme circumstances, it is conceivable that the use of a robot might be the best and only way. Yeah. Well, uh, this and, seems to blatantly say, yeah, we'll put a gun on there if we feel we need to. Well, and the policy itself says that used as a deadly force option, it doesn't say used as a deadly force option with explosives <laughs> or, you know, with a knife. It just says <laughs> deadly force. You can use any kind of deadly force. You could run somebody over with it. Oh, you know what that just made me think of, actually? General Grievous with like five morning stars or something <laughs> attached to him. You roll him down the street. A lance. <laughs> just charges you and skewers you. Oh. Anyways, I do remember reading recently in a Daniel Suarez book. I don't remember which one, but they discussed automated sniper rifles that hunted in on uh, like heat signatures and just shot every heat signature in front of them. We've talked before about drones with weapons on them, including explosives that just like dive bomb you and, you know, explode when they hit your head. And then there's drones where you can mount, you know, other weapons on there as well. Yeah, you can actually see a video online of someone who mounted a Glock to a drone. I'm sure uh, that, I mean, they're buying from government contractors, so you don't need to duct tape a Glock to the drone. Yeah, well, this is expensive. They have an actual mounting bracket for it. You don't have to use duct tape. <laughs> one of the them, top quality here. One of them mentioned it's got Picatinny rails as the default mounting system. Oh, uh, nice. Which I know means just by default, you can mount a grenade launcher on it. Yep, or shotgun. <laughs> or shotgun. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. But what makes this also interesting is that they said in the first draft of the document, and this is the quote, what was in the original document was, robots shall not be used as a force against a person or any person. So obviously they thought initially, hey, we probably should not use robots to kill people. And they go, nah, we're probably going to need to kill people with robots. Yeah. But what also makes this bizarre at least from my perspective, is that they think explosives are less bad than guns. I think it's uh, a mean thing. To, to quote the police, while an explosive charge may be considered an intermediate force option, it could potentially cause injury <laughs> or be lethal. Intermediate. <laughs> explosive is an intermediate force option. Probably because of flashbangs. They probably have to call explosives that because of flashbangs. Doubt they're talking about giving these robots flashbangs. Well, no, but I'm saying a flashbang could be considered an explosive. So, yes. so that's how they're that's how they're able to downplay it as an intermediate force option. You mean? I think so. Yeah, unless of course you know the crib urine catches fire and the house burns down. Because if, if anybody has ever played an FPS, you don't get the rocket launcher right away. You get the <laughs> pistol and then the rifle, and you build up, and eventually, towards the end, you get the rocket launcher. 
You don't I mean, start with a rocket launcher. The easy thing here is that it's about aiming. They don't trust the robots to aim. And they can just, so I looked at the little robots they have. They've got big bomb disposal robots. And then they've got these little tiny throwable ones that are like a pound. And they've got two wheels and they just run around like a gyroscope, like a, like one of those hoverboards. You could just strap like some plastic explosive to one of those little hoverboard ones and like run it up right behind somebody and poof. Pink mist. So yeah, I don't think they're blowing up the bomb disposal robots. Those are big and expensive. That's these little tiny ones. They're going to like running around with grenades on them or something. Well, I don't know because the article actually mentioned an incident that occurred with the Dallas PD six years ago where they used a bomb disposal robot with explosives to blow up a, a violent suspect. Yeah, but that was six years ago. They've got better robots now. More disposable right. robots. So that... So what you're saying is they use an they blew up an expensive robot because they didn't have a cheaper robot to blow up. Yeah, and then they realized they need cheaper robots to blow up. Uh, that <laughs> makes sense, actually. Although, given that they're buying these from government contractors, I bet even that little one-pound robot's probably 10k minimum. Oh, uh, sure. Comes with the $600 toilet seat. So I did a quick Google search trying to find examples of the robots because the article lists out the five or six different kinds of robots that are owned by the SFPD. They have six different kinds of robots. The website for the company that makes them, Remotech, is very friendly. It talks all about their home automation. I couldn't find any mention on their website of the police and military robots. I found through a different website. It's a division of Northrop Grumman. Surprise. Shocking. Uh, yeah, I know. I don't, there was nothing to indicate that these two things, this home automation website and the military side were the same company, but with a name like Remotech, I find, I have a hard time believing they're two separate companies. Yeah. Well, the other three are made by Kinetic or at least two of the other two are made by Kinetic. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a defense contract. Well, Kinetic is a defense contractor and is actually a wholly owned subsidiary of the British version of DARPA. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, no, Kinetic had a website. They were pretty public about the robot and what the robot could do, which I appreciated. And same with the uh, same with the last one, the recon drone. Yeah, that was iRobot, actually. Right? The last one was, oh, you're right, iRobot first look, and then the recon robotics recon scouts. The Roca, Re recon robotics recon scouts, 1.3 pounds, and it's like a little two-wheeled robot that uh, keeps up with the gyroscope. So. Anyways, so the San Francisco Police Department owns three types of robots. I mentioned this before. They have bomb disposal types, some of which look very large. There's some that are much larger than man size. They're all on tracks. They have a nuclear, biological, and chemical detection robot. I think that's the kinetic. Yeah, everybody uh, needs that one. I'm sorry? I said every town needs one of those. And then they have these throwable recon types, the iRobot first look and the recon robotics recon scout. The, and then uh, one of the Remotech ones is also a throwable robot, although it's like 10 pounds, which sounds like it's a drone, like you just throw it in the air, but they're not drones like we think of. They're actually small wheeled or tracked robots that are meant to be like thrown around a corner or driven around a corner to sneak up on the bad guys with a grenade or a plastic explosive tag <laughs> to them. All these robots are human controlled and driven, not autonomous. Although this makes me curious what happens when an autonomous robot comes out. Does that fall under this restriction or I guess unrestriction? I would bet because they're not defining. I didn't, I looked at it and I didn't see a specific definition no. No, uh, about the robots in there because it still would fall under the category of military hardware. Yeah. I wonder if the manufacturer has like a specific explosives package you can tie on or if you've got to use duct tape to get it on there. And it comes with a brick of black cats. Yeah, not exactly <laughs> what you expected. Actually, that'd be kind of cool. They make a good distraction. But I expect this to escalate, though. 
you know, I would say within five years, they're probably going to either start mounting tasers or beanbag guns to these things. Yeah, that makes sense. And then five years after that, they'll probably go to the actual lethal guns. Uh-huh. And considering most municipalities now also have aerial drones, you're probably going to see the same kind of progression there. Probably faster once they, like if it, if people don't complain and allow it to occur on the driven ones, that would, it would go a lot faster. Right. And they're going to be more sight unseen because you're driving down the road with a giant robot and it's got a machine gun on it. A little bit more obvious than one that's flying overhead with a machine gun on it. Or rockets or whatever that they're, you know, sort of mounting on those things. But I wouldn't be surprised if they try to pull a sleight of hand as well with the robots mounting different types of weapon systems to them that aren't typically categorized as a gun. So there's actually centrifugal weapons, which it doesn't use an explosive projectile. And if you look at the article or the, the policy, it talks about explosive projectiles. So if you use something else to sling a projectile, maybe that would be a way around them of being able to mount a lethal weapon system to it. That's not actually categorized as a gun. God, I'm picturing like a little drone limping through the air holding an RPG. It's like a unladen European swallow. Two of them together could hold the RPG. What is that? A coconut, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 coconut. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that San Francisco PD also has is their long-range acoustic device, the LRAD, which has basically been categorized as a sound cannon. Is that the same technology that they think was used on the CIA folks at the various embassies? No, that was grasshoppers. I'm not kidding. What? Yeah. They investigated that and found out that it was actually insects. For Havana syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bunch of shenanigans. All right. But one day they will roll out the ED-209, and then you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, this is where Skynet starts. And what should you do about it? Do what you're told and you won't get blown up or shot. Hopefully, unless there's a glitch. Oops, I'm very disappointed. (laughs) All right, I think we've got time to do this last one. We can blow Uh, through it real fast. All right, the next article is the Census Bureau chief defends new policy tool, or I'm sorry, new privacy tool against critics. And this comes to us from Security Week. So the U.S. Census Bureau chief is defending a new tool that's meant to protect privacy from people participating in the statistical agency's questionnaires. So in other words, those books that they send out every 10 years, and they call it differential privacy. And they chose this in order to prevent third parties from being able to piece together the identities of participants using the Census Census Bureau's data and additional outside data. And the chief was quoted as saying that differential privacy was this, was selected as the best solution available. So it kind of sounds like, yeah, it's crap. We know it's crap, but this is what we had at the time. So this is what we're using. That's kind of how I interpret that. But several state demographers and academic researcher, researchers have asked the agency to stop using this differential privacy tool for the future annual population estimates, which is apparently used to distribute 1.5 trillion in annual funding every year. That's all. Yeah, just a couple of bucks. Or use it in the American Community Survey data, which is the comprehensive information on how people live in the United States. So the first time they used this differential privacy tool was in 2020 with the 2020 census. And that has seriously delayed the release of the data. As a matter of fact, this, the data from the 2020 census has still not been released and probably will not be made public until at least next year, if not later, which makes it three years after they collect the data before they can release it. Now, one of the things that they also mentioned in this article, which emphasizes that this differential policy tool is, is crap and shouldn't be used, is 
the, end of quote, the Census Bureau, differential privacy algorithms add intentional errors to the data to obscure the identity of any given participant. They also state that bias using the privacy tool was inevitable from a purely mathematical perspective. And this came, and that came from Bureau statisticians. I, I'm sorry, but the Bureau statisticians have worked to minimize that bias. So in other words, we know it's creating crap data where it's, you know, manipulating the data that makes the output terrible. And that we're still going to, and it seems to me that just the fact that they make that statement saying, oh, well, we're introducing errors and it has a bias that we know about, that makes it unuseful it's, or it's a bad tool. There's got to be better ways to manipulate the data to reduce, to protect privacy without making the data completely useless. Yeah. It seems like an easier way to accomplish this might be to switch up fields with other peoples in the group such that the group has the correct data, but an individual user does not have 100% their data. So for example, let's, if we're looking at the census, we could look at, you know, three white dudes that all live in the same neighborhood. We could switch their incomes. We could switch their ages, but you don't switch with people outside their demographic or their neighborhood. Because if you switched incomes between a white guy, an Asian woman, and an African American guy, that would screw with the group. That would screw with the group information. So it all depends on how you group the people. So yeah, it's no, you're right. Individuals, you're right. they're all just grouped. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's even an easier answer: is you just don't give out individual information, even de-anonymized. You give out purely, you know, information at the neighborhood level or the street level or something like that, all grouped together with how many people that made up that information. So you could, you know, create some composite statistics. Yeah. Or maybe you could use the census for what it was originally designed for. Just collect a count of the number of people in the country instead of asking, you know, how many times they use the bathroom every day. 27. That low, huh? got to get those rookie numbers up. But the first time I read this article, I actually thought that they were corrupting the data that they were storing at the Census Bureau and then decorrupting it in order to use it. But what they're doing is they're actually corrupting the data that they're going to release to the public. So like the data we have, we're going to maintain, that's accurate. But anything we give the public, that's going to be bad. Uh, and that seems like a terrible solution. And they know it's a terrible solution. They even admit that it's terrible. And there's, I don't think there's really much you can do about it though. I mean, you can maintain your privacy. You can do things such as blocking scripts and cookies. You can lie when websites ask you information. You know, every time I love, every time a website asks me how old I am, sometimes I'm 30, sometimes I'm 50. Always <laughs> over 18 I'm, though. Yeah, always. <laughs> I was, was going to make a joke about being 10, but, <laughs> but then they don't let me in. Don't give them permission to track you if they're so foolish as to ask. Of course, there's a lot of people that don't bother to ask. You know, assume a dead person's identity. Move off the grid into a van by the river. There's lots of things <laughs> you can do. <laughs> a lot of options there. Lots of options there. All right, but that's all the time we have the articles for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.